Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Hamilton is overhauling the HSR map. Should the Shadok lands be used for more than just golf? Matt Kids Hospital helping with food insecurity. More sticker shock at the grocery store. Worker advocates say Ontario's minimum wage is not high enough. And big tech is slowing their products on purpose. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Big day at Hamilton City Hall today. Public Works meeting is on tap, and it will include details of a planned overhaul of the HSR's route map. And here to talk about it is Maureen Cosson-Heath, Director of Transit with Hamilton Street Railway. Maureen, good morning. How are you today? Good morning, thanks. I'm fine. How are you? I'm good. I, I know you can't comment on the report directly because it hasn't been presented to council yet, but let's talk about how and why we got to this step. Sure. Well, let me tell you, it's been a journey. Um, you know, over a number of years, the staff at uh, the Transit Division of the City of Hamilton has been working on redesigning our entire network from the ground up. And it's been about five years to get to this point. And part of the reasons for, you know, the project delays are, you know, the original plan was built around an LRT, which was canceled. And now, of course, that's back on deck. And then the two-way conversion and a worldwide pandemic were all contributing factors that um, stretched out how long it took us to get to today's debut. But we're very pleased to be presented the redesigned network today at Public Works. It's a, it's a big day for sure for the planning staff. So how much did it change over those five years? You mentioned all these different variables that you had to, you know, pump the brakes on and reverse course. How, does it look somewhat similar to the first kind of go round? I would say that the Main Street conversion was obviously the biggest factor that changed the routing structure in what we will be debuting today. But when you look at our existing bus network compared to what's going to be presented this afternoon for consideration, they are dramatically different. When was the last time, if ever, that the HSR's route map went through a revamp like this? I would say that our existing bus network is about 100 years old, so it's been about that long. Wow, that's a long time. Uh, the, the term rail-ready is also used in the report. Does that mean that this new route map is is based on the emergence of the LRT? It is really designed to support that LRT. The LRT line is going to be the spine of the overall transit network, and every connection that the bus routing has made is really designed to feed that LRT so that when it is operational, we are ready to support it for success. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Maureen Cosson Heath, Director of Transit, Hamilton Street Railway, the HSR's route map, getting uh, an overhaul. It'll be presented at uh, Public Works later on today. Uh, how many routes could potentially be affected? Are we talking about every one? Um, off the top of my head, I think it's fair to say that almost everyone will see some kind of modification. If it passes... Uh, the way it's uh, laid out right now. I know that's, you know, an if, especially with council, you know, asking questions and poking and prodding. How long would it take to adjust the route map? So we haven't gone away and done our implementation, implementation plan yet. Our first desire was to draft the new map, take it forward for public consultation, and make sure that we got the mix right. So until we're really solid with what the public perception and the council wishes are on the new design, we have not yet gone back and done costing or an implementation strategy. 
but it's fair to say that an overhaul of this size is going to take several years before full implementation is realized. What kind of questions do you anticipate at City Hall and what are some of the things that the public uh, is going to bring up? So I always try to approach council not presuming what they're going to ask. I find that that kind of gives a a bit of a better outcome. I think that they're going to be curious about the cost and the timeline. I think they'll be very curious on uh, opportunities for members of their ward to provide input. There are some wards that this is almost the introduction of transit to or a very much improved level of service to what they've traditionally seen. So we look forward to all the public engagement on a ward-by-ward basis and making sure that we've got it right. When does that public consultation begin? It'll start right after council ratification of the PW meeting. So middle of April will be the target for council ratification to move forward with consultation. And then by May, we'll be right into it. And is that a month-long process? Is that a few months? How does that uh, roll out? It'll be all summer long. It'll be all summer. Maureen Cousin-Heath is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Director of Transit. And uh, we're talking about a planned overhaul of the HSR's route map. If, again, all goes according to plan, knock on wood, uh, is the route map change going to happen in stages or all at once? We anticipate it will have to happen in stages. There's no way to do an overhaul of the magnitude that we're proposing in a, you know, shut an old system off on a Sunday night, start a new system Monday morning. It just couldn't happen. So, for example, we would adjust maybe the downtown routes and then go to the mountain. It would kind of work in in that kind of stage? Yeah, we'll work in a logical uh, approach for implementation, and a lot of it will be predicated on where we are in LRT construction. Uh, You mentioned cost. What is the price tag? So as I mentioned, we haven't done the costing exercise yet. What we first wanted to do was make sure that we've got the map right uh, and the desired levels of services, and then we'll go away and contemplate costing and rollout because this plan will require support from all three levels of government to finance, to bring to fruition. Um, lastly for you, um, when, when you're designing a route map or rejigging what we currently have, what are going to be some of the benefits that uh, HSR riders are going to realize in this city? So the whole purpose of this exercise is really to inspire more people to make transit their first choice for transportation. So we've looked to cut the number of transfers that you need to take to get anywhere in this system. We've looked to reduce travel time. We've looked to make sure that the service coverage area is consistent between different communities. We're looking to expand service hours, particularly on weekends, Saturdays and Sundays. So all the gaps in our system that our customers have been clear to tell us exist, we're looking to fill all those gaps and develop an overall network that is more frequent, more reliable and more robust and will connect them to the LRT. Sounds pretty good to me. Maureen, thanks for the time today. Good luck with us. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Maureen Cousin Heath, Director of Transit with the City of Hamilton, joining us to talk about this massive overhaul of the HSR's route map. And as you heard, it, it's take it's been years in the making and it's going to take years to implement and uh, move everything around. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. First whole week of April and... If you haven't already, you're probably dusting off the golf clubs. Really, some of you are. Might be interested in pursuing other outdoor leisurely or recreational activities, but golf certainly is at the top of many uh, person's list. And rightfully so. It's a great, great pastime. 
might take a few more hours than you want to in getting around the course, but it's uh, it's a great way to get out and uh, get some fresh air, get the body moving, and, uh, you know, partake in some pretty cool courses that we have here in Hamilton. Now, to that end, there is a Hamilton counselor who wants the city to examine whether the Shadok lands could potentially be used for more than just golf in the future. Maureen Wilson is the counselor for Ward 1 here in Hamilton and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Counselor Wilson, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm well, thank you. Why did you feel it was necessary to examine the Shadok golf courses from top to bottom? Well, as, as your listeners probably know, but just in case they don't, the city owns and operates three golf courses, King's Forest, an 18-hole course, and then there's two 18 courses at Shadok, the Martin and the Badeau. The golf courses have been reviewed before, and there were certain deliverables that were to be achieved, and they weren't achieved, including uh, we have no capital funding for some necessary works that need to be done at Shadok. And then the other question is, are the golf course lands serving the public interest? in the best possible way. So I, I think it's worthy of a review. So staff is expected to uh, compile all the data that needs to be looked at. Uh, will it be more than just looking at Shadok and Kings Forest golf courses, or are we just honing in on the city-run courses? It's just the, the city-run courses, um, and that's opera- operational data that I think will be valuable to give us a sense of uh, what's going on. Uh, we know that... Um, there's since about the year 2000, uh, there's been trends in golfing overall. Uh, we know that the number of people picking up the clubs is, has been going down. But we also know that during the pandemic, whether that was an anomaly or not, or whether it's going to create a new pattern, a new generation of, of golfers, we don't know. Golfing was one of the very few things that folks could do safely out, outdoors. And so we saw those numbers go up. So what we're looking for is... Um, overall trends. Uh, we know we don't have uh, the money there uh, to, to, to fund necessary capital works that need to be done in order to ensure the courses are able to be viable and um, work in the interests of even golfers. So it's worth a review. Is uh, Shadok a revenue generator for the city? Uh, I think during the pandemic, the numbers did go up. I, I, again, I, I, recreational activities that are publicly funded rarely make money. And I don't know if that is the expectation. I think the the framework is we also saw during the pandemic, and we know the trend is that more people are engaging in passive recreation that's not necessarily organized. So just as there were more golfers on those courses during the pandemic, there are also more walkers. And I also heard from people who said, you know, we have hundreds of acres of protected green space that are only accessible for a smaller subset of our community, and uh, they would like access to it as well. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Maureen Wilson, Councillor Ward 1 with the City of Hamilton. She's asked city staff to look at the uh, Shadok lands and whether or not they could potentially be used for more than just golf in the future. Uh, This isn't about selling any of those lands, though, right? No, the lands are overseen by the Niagara Escarpment Commission, and there's a, a lot of protections on that land, as it as it should be. 
And in regard, I mean, if you were to change, say we just kept 18 holes and the other 18 holes, we did something else, would mm-hmm. there, obviously there would be a negative uh, kind of revenue generation um, uh, to that because we're losing some of those funds, but we're also spending a lot of money to upkeep these these holes as well. We, we are. And when the golf course at Shadok was last looked at in the mid-2000s, uh, there were some things that were going to be delivered as a consequence of those changes. But those things haven't materialized. So we were going to get some uh, significant operational revenues, or at least it was thought, and it was to create a, a capital reserve to uh, generate money to put into some irrigation work that needs to be done, to put in some capital work at the golf, um, the clubhouse that needs to be done. None of those things have materialized, but the costs are still there. And in fact, they, they increase over time. What kind of ideas for that space have you heard from uh, your constituents and other residents in the, t- in the city? Yes, just to be sure, this is just not a, a subject that um, Ward 1 residents are, are speaking about. We know right now uh, that that area is already a destination. So there are hundreds of people that use the stairs, and we also uh, we also know that from the well, COVID when the stairs were closed, that created some significant angst. We also know that there's a rail trail there. People are cycling more, they're, they're hiking more, they're running more. Uh, all, all ages are using that area. So um, they, they would like it open to review. We know that uh, passive space, uh, walking, hiking, picnicking, all of those sorts of things are, are growing. So it's, it's time for us to consider all users. We used to have ski slopes at Shadok before they closed like 20 years ago. That's not on the table though, right? Well, we have to have a sustained snow for in order to make that credible. And I, that, I wasn't around for, for that decision, but uh, I, I know there's still some people in the community that certainly mourn that decision. However, we know that uh, our climate is such that it's not really sustainable anymore, at least I've been told. I would agree with that. Maureen, thank you for your time today. Enjoy the rest of the day. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. <laughs> That's Maureen Wilson, Councillor Ward 1 in the city of Hamilton. And uh, yeah, well, it'll be interesting to see what staff come back with in regards to the Shadok lands and whether or not it is uh, feasible to cut 18 holes out and put something else there and make it uh, as enjoyable for uh, all the community, not just the golfing community. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. McMaster Children's Hospital has launched a new food bank type program and it's launched it today to help patients and their families who are facing food insecurity. We know that is a real issue in this city. Jennifer Fabe is a registered dietitian, clinical specialist, and co-chair of the Pediatric Nutrition Advisory Committee at McMaster Children's Hospital and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Jennifer, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. So why did Mac Kids Hospital go down this route? Yeah, we've... At McMaster Children's Hospital, we've recognized that malnutrition affects all our practices. It impacts, you know, the length of stay at our hospital and um, the, the length of time our patients recover. And we've noticed that it, it occurs not just on our inpatient units, but also in our outpatient families as well. So, you know, an initiative was created to, to address that sort of household and hospital food insecurity. Um, and we even had some great initiatives from our emergency department where they studied the amount of food insecurity that was being observed through, through the department. And they identified about 26% of families 
were declaring that they were having some food insecurity issues. So this was our way of, of sort of helping with the issue. Um, how does it work? How do you, do you have a food bank at the hospital or, or how does this, uh, how does this uh, uh, address this issue? Yeah, we're, we're, what we're doing is we're launching a food pantry through the Children's Exercise and Nutrition Center, and we've re- repurposed a space and um, created some partnerships with our local Fortinos. And uh, we received a wonderful grant through our hospital foundation so we could purchase the food. And we stocked the shelves with some shelf-stable foods that are healthy and nutritious, of course, and no proof is required. All the family has to do is declare it to their clinician, uh, their physician or the dietitian or nurse, and they will be um, sort of shuttled over to our food pantry, and they're able to take home some meal kits or some foods from the pantry that will help them get through some of the days that are really tough. What kind of... Oh, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, what kind of uptake do you anticipate? I think we're going to get a lot of uptake and we're going to realize that we're going to build need to get this pantry a bit bigger <laughs> is what we're going to anticipate because, you know, some of those, um, you know, need studies that we did were done during the pandemic and even before the pandemic. And, and we're seeing food prices rise even since then. So we're probably going to see an uptake that's going to be very quick, which will will argue our point to make the pantry even larger. We're in discussion with Jennifer Fabe, registered dietitian, clinical specialist and co-chair of the Pediatric Nutrition Advisory Committee at Mac Kids Hospital. They've launched a uh, food pantry program today, a food bank type program to help patients with uh, food insecurity. What food items are going to be available? Sure. Yeah, we're going to be putting um, some canned soups and some fruits and vegetables and and different kinds of proteins like lentils, beans, um, and then as well as various types of grains that can suit, you know, all different sort of um, diet types that are required. And if families need a bit more um, help just putting a meal together, we've already assembled some meal kits. And so there's different kinds of meal kits that, that can be taken home um, that, that'll be afforded to the families. And also, this will be um, through the, for the families in the emergency department, that will also be um, available to them because they're sort of a transient population. So they'll come in and they'll come out. And if they declare themselves to be food insecure, those meal kits will be available to them at all hours. Can you speak to the wide-ranging impact that food insecurity has on one's health, both physically and mentally? Yeah, so food insecurity is a larger and broader issue. Um, it is not just about not having food available. It's about being able to afford the basic needs, whether it be for food or for hygiene products, etc. So it is a larger um, and systemic societal issue that requires more advocacy. And so, you know, we under- understand that we're, we're, we're a hospital that's just addressing sort of maybe the hospital food insecurity component, but the larger, you know, uh, household food insecurity is broader. And the impact on that would be um, prolonged sort of lengths of stay in the hospital, but longer recovery times if you are going for treatment. If you're not well-nourished, you're going to have longer recovery times. And even out in the community, it's very demoralizing to not be able to have the food that you need to feed your children or to provide for your children or even to feed yourself. So it, it does bring down our community um, when you know, good and just accessible food that should be accessible is not made accessible. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Jennifer Fabe from McMaster Children's Hospital, setting up as of today a new food pantry program to help those facing food insecurity. You mentioned you wanted to grow this program. How quickly do you anticipate it to grow? 
Well, we're looking for partnerships. We're always looking for partnerships. Like we said, we made a good, great partnership with, with Fortinos and we're looking for, for other ideas on how to expand and, and brainstorm on how we can address the hospital food initiatives. So if anybody's reaching out, please, please do so through our hospital. Well, it is a phenomenal program. It comes at a uh, very uh, important time as food insecurity is a, uh, a real and severe issue in this community and many others uh, around uh, the province. Do you expect other hospitals to follow suit or is, has this been replicated elsewhere already? As far as we know, um, provincially and nationally, we have not seen this initiative take take um, been been propagated forward. So, as far as we know, we're probably sort of this is the 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 leading program at the moment. Um, but we do hope that other programs in the province and country will take take our lead. Well, congratulations on being trailblazers. Uh, again, it's happening right here in Hamilton. It's a familiar phrase as we launch some important programs here, there, and everywhere. Jennifer, appreciate the time. Good luck with this. Thank you, Rick. Have a good day. You too, Jennifer Fabe from McMaster Children's Hospital. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Some categories are still going to be problematic, like vegetables, um, because of California. And uh, we're also expecting higher beef prices probably midsummer. If you're a beef lover out there, I'd I'd go back to the grocery store and buy some beef right now because I actually think it's uh, pretty certain that uh, beef prices will be higher. That was Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, the food professor on Good Morning Hamilton last week, warning us about uh, higher beef prices. We know that food prices are much higher today than they were just a year or so ago. And as many shoppers asking once again, why and, and how do grocery stores set their prices? This has been, as I mentioned, a hot topic for well over a year, but it was reignited after a tweet from a shopper. And we'll get to that in a second. But let's bring in our next guest here. Dr. David Soberman is a professor of marketing at the University of Toronto's Rotman School of Management. Dr. Soberman, good morning. How are you? Good morning. How are you? I'm good. So this uh, this debate, as I mentioned, was reignited after we saw a tweet showing a lemon cake at Sobeys in Thornhill priced at $55. And so the question erupted, how do grocery stores set their prices? So how does it work? Well, I guess for the prices of things that are sold on a regular basis, uh, competition and the competitive price has a large influence on the price that you'll see in the store. But for things that are a bit unusual or unique, prices are set based on willingness to pay and how much the retailer believes they can sell it for. Because we have to always remember that retailers, whether they're selling food or whether they're selling clothing or whether they're selling appliances or electronics, they're there to make a profit and their objective is to sort of maximize the return to their shareholders. So um, this lemon cake in question, perhaps there's a person who actually would pay that for that particular cake, in which case that was a good decision uh, by Sobeys to choose that price. If no one buys that lemon cake for $55, I'm sure Sobeys is going to adjust that price quickly. But the question is, how much higher is it going to be above what it paid for the product? And that that's where we come back to the, the profits of said item. Well, indeed. I mean, I think the whole issue here is there's two different topics. One is, is there enough competition between supermarkets? And the second thing is, 
If you walk through a grocery store, you're sometimes going to see prices that seem out of whack. But typically, these prices that seem out of whack are on, are on unusual or unique items. Um, you're not going to go in and find a, a standard cart, two-liter carton of milk or a pound of butter or 12 eggs at a price of $50. But for something like a lemon cake, which is kind of unusual, probably it's not something that is on the shopping list of everyone every day. Um, you may see these prices that are aberrations. And indeed, probably if they don't sell it, they're going to have to probably throw it in the dumpster because, of course, things that are baked like that actually have a shelf life beyond which the product can't be sold. Would more competition curb these kind of shocking prices for these unique items? Well, that's an interesting question. I guess the whole issue is that anytime you have any store, and, and we've got to remember that within a supermarket, there's anywhere from 10 to 20,000 SKUs. So there's two issues here. One is, are all of these supermarkets going to be carrying the same things? And the other thing is, are people going to be informed about the prices? So typically what you're going to find is that prices tend to be a lot more reasonable and a lot more competitive on items where people have an idea of what the price should be. But if you're buying an unusual spice from Asia or you're buying a cake made with unusual fruit, these are the sorts of things where people might go in and say, well, that looks good. I know it's expensive, but I'm going to give it a go. One of the main reasons is they may not be informed of what prices they could basically buy the same thing in other stores. But the other thing as well is that product might not even be available in other stores. So anytime you have something that's unique, it gives you a lot of flexibility in how you can set prices. It's a pretty uh, phenomenal topic. And when it comes to those staples you mentioned, like milk, eggs, butter, is there a cap on what um, retailers or grocery stores can charge? I wish there were. <laughs> I think that's probably one of the areas where, as Canadians, we're a bit frustrated. In an inflationary environment, when you see the supermarkets registering 30 or 40% profit increases, a lot of us are a bit concerned that maybe the prices for those uh, particular items are a little too coordinated. And by coordinated, I mean the supermarkets don't really compete as competitively with each other as they should. And that's, of course, why there were those meetings in uh, Ottawa last month. Dr. Soberman, appreciate your insight into this. Thanks for joining us today. It was my pleasure. Thank you. That is Dr. David Soberman, Professor of Marketing at the University of Toronto's Rotman School of Management. Who is going to pay $55 for a lemon cake? I guess if one person does, it might be worth putting it at that price. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The provincial government's announcement last week that Ontario's minimum wage was going to go up to $16.65 an hour on October 1st. Yeah, that's pretty good news. Sixteen sixty-five compared to what is it now? Fifteen fifty. That's a healthy increase. However, is it high enough? Is that minimum wage where it should be? We know that the living wage for the Living Wage Network in in this community, especially, is well over twenty dollars an hour. Welcome back to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Rick Samprin with you. Uh, Dina Ladd is the Executive Director of Workers Action Centre and joins us now on GMH. Dina, good morning. How are you today? Good morning. Thanks for having me. So this was a nice boost, obviously, but is it high enough? Where does the Workers Action Centre sit on this? 
Yeah, so the boost is basically uh, a part of legislation that got passed in 2014 that makes sure that the minimum wage doesn't lose its value, right? So the boost that we got is basically a cost of living increase. And so so that's that's what it is. And so, of course, we all need to have a cost of living increase just to keep up with the prices. As you know, the grocery bills, the rent, everything is just massive right now. And we have a huge affordability crisis. And so what we're saying that in addition to making sure that minimum wage is indexed to the cost of living, that, you know, it needs, it needs a, a substantial raise. And partly the reason why we're, we're saying this is because the Ford government actually froze the minimum wage for two years, didn't allow it to go up with the cost of living and took away the $15. So, so frankly, if that hadn't happened, we would be actually closer to $18 an hour, which is a lot closer to the $20 that we think people um, need just to sort of make ends meet at this point. Yeah, we should be, as you mentioned, around 18 if we were continuing to go on that trajectory. And I would imagine that that decision almost five years ago now had set a lot of people back. I think so. I mean, I think that, you know, we've seen numerous reports, especially from food banks, basically talking about, you know, if you um, increase a minimum wage by a dollar, you will actually see close to 40,000 less visits at the food bank per year. And we know, I mean, you know, I'm not sure what the stats are for Hamilton, but just in Toronto alone in 2022, we had 2 million visits to food banks. And so there is a huge food insecurity crisis right now. I know that, you know, many of the cities, Hamilton, uh, Toronto, like all the surrounding areas, we're dealing with people who can't afford uh, basic rent. Um, uh, the cost of a one-bedroom apartment is astronomical right now, and I'm not sure how you're supposed to do that on 15.50, which is what the minimum wage is, or even 16.55, which is what it will be going up on October 1st. And so I think people are saying, "Listen, like, you know, if all of my money is going towards rent, I've got nothing left at the end of the day." And so, you know, I think businesses suffer because of that as well. No one has money to pay for products and services and, and goods. And so I think that what we, what we need is a minimum wage that will actually allow people to, to not just, you know, barely hang on, but to actually thrive. And I think the other downside that we're seeing right now is that, you know, people are working two, three jobs just to try to make the bills at the end of the month. And that's not good for anyone. We've got about 30 seconds. Uh, the minimum wage should be, according to the Workers' Action Centre, $20 an hour. Is that correct? Yes, yes. So we're pushing for a $20 minimum wage and, and also pushing for things like, you know, paid sick days so that, you know, you can actually take a day off without worrying about paying your bills at the end of the day. That will go a long way to helping a lot of people. We know that paid sick days were just axed from the latest provincial governments, and that is greatly going to affect a lot of people in this province. Dina, we'll have to leave it there. Really appreciate your time today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. Dina Ladd is the executive director of the Workers Action Center. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The world's tech giants, you know them. 
uh, Meta, Amazon, Google, they are making their core products worse, and they're doing so on purpose. It's being called Big Tech's Big Downgrade. But uh, the question is, why? Why are they doing this? Christine Corda is a Forbes Top 50 digital influencer and a technology expert and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Christine, good morning. Welcome to the show. Hi, good morning. Thank you for having me. When uh, we Google a topic these days, more often than not, uh, we see a few or if not many sponsored or, or ad links at the top of the list. Then down the list is really the information that we're really looking for. And when it comes to Facebook or Meta, in our feeds are being littered with sponsored content. So the question is, why? Why are these big tech, tech companies doing this? Rick, it's all about the money. <laughs> Follow the money. <laughs> You know, for for years, all, all these companies have, you know, been offering services and, you know, taking more money from investors. And now they sort of, and then they have to keep them fe- feeding that investment or uh, investor feed. So it's all about bringing in more money. And the, and the way they do that, obviously, is through more advertising, through more push of advertising to the person. Uh, and the technology is getting smarter in the sense that it understands what we're sort of looking for, like what we like. It may not give us exactly what we're looking for, but it gives us what uh, advertisers would be best suited to our personalities, to our tastes, to our wants, to our needs. So that's sort of what's happening. You're being hit with all the advertisements first. This has been a gradual kind of rollout from these companies. It wasn't, you know, a a, a date in which we can point back to to say, you know, that was the time it all started. Um, Are these companies realizing uh, what they are getting out of this purposeful uh, slowdown? Are they getting the biggest bang for their buck? As a user, I'm going to say no, um, <laughs> they're not getting their biggest bang for their buck because they're going to start u- losing their user base. And also users find different ways to get around the ads. You know, ad blockers um, is one of the ways uh, they can go and find different search engines that maybe not be as popular with the advertisers, but they still give you the same type of search. So you end up using that, losing that user base. And that brings but for me- them financially, yes, it helps, uh, and it keeps those people investing in the company. That brings me to buying that stock. Yeah, that brings me to the breaking point. You know, it, using Google is getting more frustrating at times. Socializing with people on social media, especially Facebook, is is getting that frustration stage. Is there a breaking point, and if so, are are we there? Are we close to it? Some people will say yes. I'm going to say no. <laughs> I am a big social. Um, user of all the different types of platforms and they're all going through this i mean instagram is is part of facebook but for me instagram was actually the most annoying because they don't show me ads even come close to what i'm interested in you know twitter i haven't seen so many ads lately i i understand it's a part of doing business i'd like to see less but yeah i i don't think we're going to google facebook um Amazon is going to lose the customer. I think there's a lot of fear mongering going on with people going, oh, that's, you know, is it the end for them? No, it's not the end. Uh, TikTok also has ads on its uh, social media platform. And uh, I'm not sure if it's as much of a bother for users, but do you think we're also getting used to seeing all these ads and just kind of scrolling past them? Like, how effective is advertising on social media? Yeah, what, once again, um, it's obviously working because 
brands are doing it. But I, I think for like for the typical person, but I think anyone that's aware of what they really like and who they are, are, are sort of flipping through that. I, I think it's more for the younger uh, person. You know, you see all these images of, of showing what you should look like, what products you should have. And then, of course, on TikTok now, you have the D, D influencer, which is saying what products not to buy. Um, so I'm going to say for the younger uh, generations that, yes, this is an issue still. I think for the older, we've gotten used to it. And I, I, I think our minds and brains and eyes and ears, and we just skip it, skip over it all. Yeah, I'm certainly in that boat. That is for sure. Christine, we'll have to leave it there. Really appreciate your time this morning. Okay, great. Thank you for having me. Hopefully I gave some insight of something. (laughs) Absolutely you did. Yes, thanks for the time. Christine Corda is a Forbes Top 50 digital influencer and a technology expert chiming in on big tech's big downgrade. And yeah, I'm I'm noticing that, you know, you Google something and yeah, you know, your, your search topic comes up. But, you know, the first two, three, maybe even four things are ads or sponsor uh, content. And while it is a little bit associated with what you're searching for, it's not exactly what you're searching out. Um, Well, let's see if uh, they change anything in the years to come. I doubt it. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode and make sure you rate and review.